Hello and welcome to a very special collaborative effort between the Lib Dem podcast and the Nevermind the Bar Charts podcast. I'm the host of the, the Lib Dem podcast, John Potter, and with me down the line is the host of Nevermind the Bar Charts podcast, party president and co-leader, Mark Pack. Good to speak to you, Mark. Likewise, John. Lovely, lovely to be on your show, which is obviously the second best Liberal Democrat podcast in existence. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to argue it if we look at the viewing figures, so that's very true. <laughs> um, but no, but if you want to catch any of us, so some of you might be new to me, some of you might be new to the Bar Charts podcast, you can follow everything to do with the Lib Dem podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram and at Lib Dem pod. You can follow Nevermind the Bar Charts on Facebook and on Twitter at at Bar Charts Podcast. And you can follow everything to do with Mark. He is on Instagram at Mark Pack UK and on Twitter at just at Mark Pack. I did have a look to see who had Mark Pack on Instagram. Very annoyingly, he doesn't post anything since 2012. That must be very frustrating to you. Um, yeah, there is there is a Mark Pack out there who is uh, a moderately successful artist. Okay, very and good. Sadly, I, I don't actually like his art, and I'm sure that's <laughs> on me, not on not on, on his abilities as an artist. Because otherwise, that would have been quite cool if, if there was an artist out there with the same name as me that I could have tried to, to find his cheapest possible piece of art that maybe have. But... Well, and if you want to follow myself, I am at John Potter LD. And the reason we are doing this is because as of, uh, we are recording this on Friday, and as of yesterday, um, a decision was announced that the leadership election will be delayed until mm. after the May 2021 elections. It's had a lot of interest from members on, from both sides of the arguments online. So me and Mark have come together to do a, a kind of a chat about this and go through some of the issues. And obviously mm. Mark, uh, as much as he would have loved to do it himself, to host and ask himself questions would have been very strange very quickly. Uh, so he's very kindly asked me to do it. So I'm more than happy to do it. So... Thank you very much for that, Mark. We re really appreciate it. And I suppose the first point of this is, would you like to explain the decision of what the federal board has actually came up with? Yeah, definitely. Thank you, John. Um, so the board last night decided to hold off the Lib Dem leadership election that was due to start in May this year until after the May elections next year. So the leadership election will kick off uh, in May 2021. Um, and I guess there are probably three reasons for that decision. Um, and I'll, I think I'll zoom in particularly on the reasons for delaying as long as through to May next year, because I think most people yeah. uh, were of the view that in current circumstances, some sort of delay might be sensible, but why go as far as May next year? Um, one is simply a matter of almost decorum. At what point is it appropriate for us to be talking about party leadership and arguing over political strategy and policies and the like uh, in a relatively public way because leadership elections are by their nature a semi-public exercise at what point will it feel appropriate to do that compared with the fact that there is going to be a really sad and tragic flow of news about people suffering and dying from coronavirus for it looks like quite some period of time so there's a question about you know, we need to pick a time at which people feel it's OK to have those sorts of uh, discussions and debates. And the second factor was around sort of distraction, that it is quite a time consuming and focus attack grabbing and the energy sapping exercise running for party leader. 
or to be part of the team that's organising a party leadership campaign. And so there was a sense of if Britain is, you know, even if this current spike in coronavirus goes as well as we could most optimistically expect, there's still going to be a long period of healing and recovery. And do we want to be distracting people from that rather than doing their jobs as parliamentarians, community advocates and the like? And we've seen actually, even with the really rushed legislation through Parliament for the coronavirus emergency legislation, Lib Dem work and attention and pressure in Parliament did bring about some helpful improvements in that legislation. Um, and then the third issue is the one about certainty. So the one thing I said to the board before we, we sort of did our votes to make the decision last night was I think you know, we should be we should definitely go for either do the leadership election quickly or leave it till May next year. The you know, the, the apparently attractive compromise of, well, maybe we leave it a bit or we keep it constantly under review. What that means is we end up without being able to really do the sort of long term planning and get on with things in a way um, that is possible, either if we had got a new leader in place really quickly or if at least we know we've got the current set up for a year. Um, the analogy I would draw for anyone who's been involved with, say, a charity or that you know, a normal place of work or other sort of organisation is imagine if you had a chief exec and you were saying, well, we're going to keep on thinking about possibly replacing the chief exec in a couple of months. That's very destructive to the ability of an organisation to actually plan and do stuff properly. But there is a, a, a definite advantage of, of certainty. And if you want certainty, then, you know, sadly, even if this first spike in coronavirus goes really well, there's quite high chances of a second spike at some point during the winter and so on. So May next year looks like, you know, looked like the best option on balance to the board for that. And I've heard reports, and I'm not on the federal board, so there were four options put to the board, as in one, do nothing, two, postpone till September, three, postpone till February, and four, postpone till, till be after the May local elections. And that it generally came down to either postponed till September or postponed to May. That seemed to be the big kind of decision to be made. Is that correct? Yeah, I think, you know, as 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 ever, when you have a sort of complicated and nuanced decision and a large number of people, you spawn an awful lot of different options. And I'm grateful to my colleagues on the board for saving us from having to run a complicated SDV ballot on the hoof by WhatsApp. <laughs> but, uh, um, but yeah, you know, it, it really came down to the, you know, do we do it as quickly as we think we really can or we, do we do we go for the, the long delay? Um, and I, I think that, you know, that that idea of sort of trying to compromise is always a good thing to think about. But I think it quite clearly became clear in the discussions that actually you, just, you have to bite the bullet and make a choice one way or another. A compromise in this case would have most likely been the worst of all worlds. And so now that the decision has been made, there is no process within the federal board for if... Everything, like I said, I completely understand the arguments about we might have a secondary spike later in the year. Um, but do we, is there a process where this can be reviewed or is it now locked in place for after the May local elections? Sorry, not just local elections. There's, there's about a dozen different elections happening in May yeah. next year. But is that now locked in place? Um, the, you know, the decision we made was very much one of this is the decision and it's for to wait till after those elections in May next year. Of course, if there was some dramatic alteration in circumstances, 
know, I don't think anyone would be so churlish as to say we're never going to think again. Um, you know, if there was, I mean, I guess the most likely dramatic change of circumstances are ones that might reinforce the validity of that decision. You know, if coronavirus actually plays out much worse than we hope it will do over the next few weeks. But obviously, if there was some other sort of dramatic change of circumstances, you know, it would be really churlish to say, no, go away. We made a decision. We're never going to talk about this for a year. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go through some of the questions that have been mm. fired to myself from members, etc. One of them, and there's, well, there's been a couple of people have raised this about whether this it is within the constitution of the party to actually delay in this way. Now, I am not a party constitutional expert, Plus, we have way too many lawyers and way too wannabe <laughs> lawyers in our party anyway for me to kind of delve into that. But is the party having to change its own rules or is intending to change the rules to accommodate this moving the uh, the leadership election further yeah. away? Yeah, so on that, I'm just breaking out my copy of the Constitution to be able to quote the right article to you. <laughs> but while, I'm, uh, while I'm doing that, I think what um, what we did before and after our decision was check key elements with the chair of the federal appeals panel so the chair of the federal appeals panel is the person who rules on interpretations of the constitution and so before the meeting i had checked with him uh issues around our ability to change the timetable and so on because there were also some questions raised about exactly how the constitution works and so on during the meeting you know, we also agreed that I would then, after the meeting, check with him the decision that we had made and that, you know, that he's happy with it in terms of his job as sort of guardian of the Constitution. And he has confirmed that he's happy with, with the process and the decision we made. Obviously, happy in a procedural sense. It's not mm. for the Chair of the Federal Appeals Panel to have a personal view on the merits, but that it's within the, it's within the, 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 the powers of the board and the rules as they're written. One, one little thing that's worth mentioning, if anyone is sort of racing for their constitution to read up on this, is there is a um, unfortunate slight formatting ambiguity in, in the constitution. This is sounding a lot like that West Wing episode where they find a, an inconsistent comma in the constitution yeah. that, co uh, that I, causes all sorts of aggro. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I um, But it's Article 18.2G has within it two subsections, a little one and a little two. Um, unfortunately, those are not tab indented. So if you just read it initially, it can look like rather than being subsets of G, as in think points that clarify G, that they are actually uh, sort of one, one, one level up. So anyone, if, if they do, do have a look at their constitution, do bear in mind that the little I and the little double I ones are subclauses to the clause G above them. Um, and I think that's where a little bit of confusion may have may have arisen. But the key point is that, yeah, absolutely, you know, being quite careful to get this right, sort of checking with the chair of the appeals panel in advance and also just as a, as a safety net afterwards as well. And I should say thank you to him for turning around that second, that second opinion pretty, pretty, pretty speedily. Appreciated that that was expedited. So a lot of members have also. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure I agree with the the actual decision to delay it. I mean, obviously, I wasn't in the meeting, but there is a worry about mm. delaying beyond September or the autumn about what this will mean for the election uh, coming up in May. Now, from a from a local ward level and county level council like I am, 
I would say the party leader is never in my leaflets, very rarely comes up on the doors. But there's, but with the huge elections in Wales and especially Scotland, mm -hmm. which could affect the future of the union, yeah, there's, a, there's a definite place for the air war will be part of that campaign. And surely having a leader is important for that campaign. Yeah, and, and in a way, this is slightly similar to the discussion we had earlier this year about when you should originally have timetabled Andy Bishop election for. I think, and as you say, those elections in May are absolutely massive elections. I think a couple of points that are worth bearing in mind the other way, as it were, you know, why it's actually better to have the leadership election just after them. One is obviously in Scotland and Wales, we have a very good leader of the Scottish Lib Dems and a very good leader of the Welsh Lib Dems. And they, I think matter rather more for those elections than who the UK-wide the federal party um, leader is. Um, but, you know, that's an important factor to consider. The other is actually quite a few Liberal Democrat council leaders, uh, you know, had said to me they would rather the election is delayed because they're so busy at the moment running their council, trying to help their communities and so on. And when I then asked the follow-up question, well, OK, if delay means that we also say we don't want to do it in the winter because of the risk then of another coronavirus spike and getting caught in this whole cycle again. If we, if delay means delaying till after May next year, are you happy with that? The answer from a lot of them was yes, absolutely, because they are so flat out running their councils, dealing with the public policy side of all of this. And that will go on for quite some time. And then, frankly, they'll need a bit of time to recover from that. Uh, you know, from all of that as well. So there was a bit of a sense of, look, don't distract us with a leadership election um, be, be, before then. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I think it is, it, it's one of these issues where there are definitely arguments on all sides and multiple different options. But one thing that did strike me was how in a lot of the sort of the lobbying and messages that I was receiving is it wasn't a neat pattern of people who think X should be leader, therefore are arguing for Y. And, you know, people who think Z should be leader were arguing for not Y. Um, but, but it's a much more mixed pattern, uh, which I think is reassuring in that sense, because obviously my role as president in part is to try to make sure members' voices are heard and respected. And therefore the timing of an election should be all about what benefits and works best for the party not what benefits or works best for any particular individual. And I think that leads us on to the next stage of discussing why, in in some opinion, there'll be the argument of whether it would be a distraction and how the election would go about, the leadership election, and how that would actually affect people and campaigns. And you've said you've had uh, council leaders involved. Now... It, from my point of view, I mean, I'm not a I'm a leader of a group, but I don't run a yeah. council or anything like that. I mean, it, if I'm brutally honest, it, the, the leadership election is unlikely to have a massive effect on my county seat next year. I would say either way, but what it does do, I think, I, I, I have had a very strong feeling that the party has been a bit flat and is licking its wounds from mm -hmm. the general election. And what a leadership election could do is actually give those members a bit of a boost before they get in uh, to get themselves back into this the spirit of it to see the party regenerating coming up with new policies to, and i take everything on board of what you were saying earlier yeah. about you've got to do it in a very because the nation's going to go through a very very rough time in the next weeks and months 
um, and doing it, you know, not very brashly and in the face and, and not looking too navel-gazing. But that must be a consideration of we need to re-energise the membership after what happened in the general election. I definitely, and it's a really important factor. I think that's why the discussion did very much polarise around go now or long, you know, delay fully, um, because it, at least with the option that we picked, we know who the interim you know, co-leaders are going to be, and there is a degree of certainty that comes from that and an ability to therefore plan and get on with certain things in a way that if we were in a rolling position of not quite being sure when we might change, um, when we might decide who the leader's going to be, that in that rolling period, that would be much harder to do. So I, I think that weighed quite heavily on a lot of people's minds. It's just you can then interpret that either as a go quickly or as a delay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> delay like the next year and option. Then, and one of the other options that certainly I, because so f our elections are now entirely either postal or online. The, <laughs> the vast majority of are online. So the the risk to voters is minimal. I think we we can agree there's not much chance we're going to spread it through the in, in the infection through through that part of it. But it, has there been consideration taking a decision about what effect it would have on uh, say uh, the candidate staff, the people they would need to conduct their campaign? Has that come into the thinking? Yeah, definitely. And this is a point several people have made quite eloquently, which is that a leadership election puts a lot of strain on the time and attention of the people who are the candidates and their campaign teams and so on. And just you know, at what point do we want to put that burden on them? And in a way, it's an important burden because I think doing leadership elections properly with a careful sort of cross-examination of the candidates, their records, their promises is part of how we make the right decision in a leadership election. And definitely one lesson I draw from previous leadership elections, not just in the Dems, is it's very often the case that what most matters for whether a leader is successful or not is an issue uh, that hasn't really got explored in the election in which they got elected. And in that sense, I can understand why some people feel it's a bit tempting. Can we not just rush through and, you know, it's just an email out and get everyone to vote and have it over and done within a few days and so on. I mean, there's some issues around our rules and we need to be really careful about when we decide to, you know, push the limits of our rules in these circumstances and the democratic power of members is definitely an area where we have to be super careful so there's some issues with the rules but also fundamentally rushing through a sort of low-key election risks meaning we don't have that sort of thoroughgoing process that means the winner is better able to do their job and the party is better able to support the winner i, I suppose you could in i mean the, the labor leadership uh campaign is coming to an end but actually have we heard anything at all to do with the Labour leadership since coronavirus hit the news that would be uh, a question you'd have to ask yourself is would we get any sort of oomph from it at all anyway yeah and I think I mean the, the Labour comparison is a is a helpful one I think because my certainly obviously I'm not a Labour member Labour members may have a different view on this but certainly my perspective from the outside is they have not really had that debate internally about what the lessons of the last election are, partly because they went so quickly into their leadership election, and then because a the whole chunk of their leadership election, as you say, John, has been overshadowed by coronavirus. And I think that's, that's a problem for them, you know, because now 
any future debates over lessons from 2019 are immediately going to get framed of are you for or against the current leader um, and it, that's really going to cramp their ability to properly learn from last year um, and so I hope by taking this course we'll be able to avoid making that mistake and falling into that that trap that Labour has fallen into. Is there a concern though again on the other side of the argument and I'm trying to be a good balanced kind mm. of interview interviewer here is that concern that if Keir Starmer is likely to be elected, we're giving him a year's free run almost where he is establishing himself as a new moderate side to Labour, which would eat into perhaps the, the yep. centre ground the Lib Dems like to occupy, that we are giving him a bit of a free run for a year. I mean, there is, there, there's, there's always a risk when another party elects a new leader, that they may take their party successfully into a direction that Sort of encroaches on what we would hope would be our turf. I think in terms of what it means for the party, I mean, it, one thing that will play out is that we will have, you know, an interim co-leader who is really keen to show how well they can do the job. We'll also have, uh, you know, one or more other people in the party who will be really keen to show just how good they could be. And I think as long as that is a constructive tension, actually, that could be really good. Um, and I think we actually have seen even a little bit of that in recent weeks, that there have been um, many more op-eds from some of our MPs than usual. Yeah, And, and, <laughs> and I've no doubt that's 100% motivated by the good of the party. But, you know, you sort of think yeah. there, is a, <laughs> but there is something helpful. And, um, and and that's part of the reason. Uh, the ne my next question is going to ask is that we all know we've been in campaigning for a long time. That effective campaigning starts long before the mm. official start of the campaign. Yeah. So won't the candidates, whether it's it's Layla, Vera, whoever, along with Ed, probably, um, whoever those candidates are, are already going to be starting campaigning anyway, aren't they? Yeah, and and obviously, you know, it's important in my role to sort of keep neutral in, in, in that leadership process. But definitely, I think you can see how different people have been ramping up different activities. I think things like the higher flow of op-eds from the Dem MPs in the media is a, a plus. That's something that's good for the party overall. I also, in my role as president, um, attend, or rather these days, dial in via Zoom to most of the parliamentary party meetings. And it is reassuring that it is a you know, it's a functioning team of people. It's not like there is sort of coded, coded insults and daggers drawn between potential would-be leadership uh, candidates. It's, you know, people are working together well as a team. There will, um, no doubt, be some strains and some stresses, and that's bound to be the case. Um, and obviously, I fully appreciate that for some staff, it will be a little difficult as well, having to make sure they balance, uh, you know, balance properly, the demands from different MPs to be featured in emails to members, etc. But I'm quite confident that partly because we're a relatively small party, it makes it a lot easier to see the fact that not only will we have a contest where there will be a winner and a loser, but then the day after that, we will all have to work together successfully because otherwise nobody ends up being a winner out of any of this. Um, you, because you've mentioned it several times, I was going to we leads on nicely to actually talking about the staff at HQ. Yeah. Because uh, obviously, firstly and foremost is the welfare of the party staff. Mm. Are are they coping well? Is the party generally uh, are they are they engaged properly? I mean, what's the kind of what's the kind of headline takeaway from the staff at HQ? Yeah, 
Um, I, I mean, I'm immensely grateful and immensely impressed by the way staff have responded to, uh, you know, basically switching to working from home. The sort of HQ building that we have in London is now uh, not being used for anyone to work from. People have switched to work from home. And I know that's a big and disruptive change. And of course, many of them are parents with young children and therefore also being affected by uh, yeah, the impact of schools being closed. And, and it's been really impressive how well uh, staff have adapted and are coping with that. That said, I know that it's difficult for a lot of them, as it is for a lot of us. Um, we're lucky that we have a really good pastoral care officer who's been really busy, uh, you know, providing good advice and support. Um, and it's really nice to see quite a lot of the, the things that are being done to help keep sort of keep us keep staff sort of motivated and, and finding a new rhythm in the working day when you're you know, sat, sat at home on, on your own, potentially, rather than being sat in an office surrounded by other people. Um, so I think we should be really grateful for the way that staff have responded. And of course, I know that, you know, in current times, there are all sorts of things, hiccups that happen and so on. I would just add, you know, a little bit of a plea that when things do go wrong, I think we all need to be extra careful to be mindful of our tone of voice because when we're when you know and when things go wrong criticism is often justified but just remember at the moment very often when any of us are criticizing what's happened or someone else that other person you know, maybe somebody who's under quite a lot of quite a lot of stress with dealing with childcare, worried about their relatives health or their own health etc so you know, let's all just make that extra effort to be nice to each other i think it's also about having a level of patience as well i mean what I mean, we certainly from a, a councillor group as well, we've put it quite publicly out there to, to people, you know, things that you would expect to get fixed. You know, council staff are going to be overly stretched. They're going to be dealing with lots of issues, whether that's, you know, having to homeschool their children, working from home, all this upheaval. And just to have a, a, a level of patience before you dive straight into criticism is probably a, a sensible way for most people to approach, to approach what's going on at the moment. I feel I should add an apology in advance because I'm sure I will fail on that score at some point. So apologies <laughs> when I do, but I think the spirit of what you've said is absolutely right, John. Um, and I'm kind of, uh, I mean, I, I was going to now move away from mm. uh, the leadership election unless there's something else you would like to, to point out. We, we have had some people saying, well, surely does this mean we are going to now change our digital strategy i know that's right in your kind of uh, mm. uh, your your strong point your specialist subject um is is this going to force us to do something changes within how the party i mean we do a lot of stuff digitally yeah. anyway because it's cheaper and it's the way you know yeah. most parties are going um but is this forcing any changes do you think upon the party yeah definitely and and I say that, I guess, for two reasons. One is this is what's happening to society all around us. I mean, think how quickly Zoom has gone yeah. from this thing that most people hadn't heard of to something that even people who are not that IT literate or IT self-confident are quite happily using day in, day out. So there's a, been a big change already to this idea of interacting with other people via whether it's slack or zoom or other online channels that and that will affect workplaces it will affect patterns of work for years to come it may well be the case that you know it used to be a little bit of a perk 
if a job allowed you to work from home mm. that you might think oh this is great i could work from home for one day a week that that could draw you in to think that was maybe a job you particularly wanted to do it may be that we're going to soon be in a world where the idea that oh there's an office that i can go into one day a week is the perk that people are looking out for yeah. and, and the, the the line the line what was events dear boy events isn't mm. necessarily me meant to be as a negative is the fact that it also gives you the ability yeah. to change to make fundamental mm. changes in how not just yeah. we operate as a party but as society operates definitely and and purely from the party's perspective which is you know a small part of a much bigger picture but from the party's perspective one of the next decisions the board has to get to is what do we do about autumn conference ah you've come um, right on to my next question so that's perfect so that, yeah and i we i have seen your post but again we will i'll let you talk it through for those mm. who haven't seen your uh, your newswire post about that you are asking for opinions on mm. whether or what we should hold the autumn conference so again i'll let yeah. you do a little bit of an explanation on that yeah it's for those who aren't familiar with our conference sort of schedule, we normally have a four-day conference Saturday through to Tuesday in September uh, at a conference centre. Um, so it's a big physical gathering of people, several thousand people in total. And there's a big question mark about can getting several thousand people together, much bigger even than one of our spring conferences is, can we do that? Is it reasonable to expect that it will be possible to go ahead with that sort of event in September. Um, and the lead times are quite long. So although September feels a very long way away, if we would say discussing coronavirus and the news around that, we have to make a decision pretty soon. And the risk is if we go ahead with our usual plans and discover we have to cancel at fairly short notice, like we did for spring conference, that's probably about a half a million pound hit for the party. So it would be about half a million pounds that we could otherwise spend on other stuff that would have been thrown away uh, for the sake of not having made a decision sooner. So that's why the board is going to look at it pretty promptly. We've basically got an option of, let's say, go ahead anyway. Maybe we want to take the risk on that 500,000 because the conference is so important and so on, especially like the spring conference. So option one is go ahead. Option two is to try to do an online conference make it all online and option three broadly speaking is to say well a fully online conference is just too ambitious and difficult to go from scratch to that so maybe rather than doing an online conference we cancel conference but we um instead do some sort of online event that might be uh, have maybe a greater mix of the non-formal stuff that's more a series of online fringe meetings as well. And perhaps within that, we have a little session that is a bit of formal party business. I can see how there is a really strong argument that if we do in some way cancel, we should make sure that members have the chance to hold me to account, for example, in and the federal board in the way that members would normally at a real conference. You know, if we're doing all of this other stuff, definitely there needs to be the opportunity for members to hold me and the board to account for what we're doing and um, all the fourth option of course is to say let's not make any decision for the moment um I, I, that that fourth one I, I i i fear again is tempting but would be the worst of all worlds because if we are going to cancel the sooner we make that decision the bigger the cost cost savings that we can make from making that decision and the more time we have to therefore work properly on any sort of online semi-substitute. Um, so yeah, that decision will be coming up, coming up in the next few days, almost certainly. So anyone who has got views, 
please do, you know, make use of those social media accounts that you mentioned earlier, John, to let me or other board members know that know their opinions. And, and I think that's really important, you know, just to, you know, the, the board members want to hear your feedback as long as taking into account what we've talked, make sure it's polite, make sure it, it, you understand the conditions to, and mm-hmm. just to never assume that yours is the only opinion that's that's valid. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I mean, I'm in a really difficult position with it. I'm not sure what you should do. And I think if you go into it thinking, what are the options both sides of this argument? Because to lose half a million pounds is a serious chunk of cash mm. when we've talked about earlier about the big elections coming up in may the huge elections coming up in may and how much half a million is useful for that fight yeah. these are real you know every penny counts in these elections mm. so it's it's a really really tough decision and i'm quite glad i'm not on the federal board for that one because it would be a i i have all the sympathy in the world for that decision whatever decision you make there's going to be people that you you are going to um upset and are going to be upset about it so uh, just good luck to you i suppose is my answer to that <laughs> yeah, thanks, <John. laughs> I, I, I mean the other thing that that it highlights is as you say once you start thinking of if we don't do something how much money does that therefore mean we potentially have to spend on other things that's the thought process we need to think about rigorously through all of what we do um because we are now in a world where until there's a vaccine or maybe at least a very effective and widely available and cheap treatment uh, for the symptoms you know but until we've got a medical breakthrough we're going to be in a world where at short notice a whole load of lockdown type measures might be introduced again you know one of one of the things that's notable about how countries that suffered from the SARS epidemic a few years back had responded to coronavirus was partly because of the experience but partly also because of the wider public understanding and support they moved really quickly to start doing things like shutting down schools and and, and cancelling events and the like and that's the world that we're now going to be in and so that raises a question about a lot of a lot of different things i mean how do you you know for example john you and your colleagues how do you plan local election campaigns in future know that there's a risk that canvassing may be suspended for several weeks that there there are ways we can rise to that challenge i've no doubt and that may be about digital campaigning it may be about better use of text messaging which is actually something we do relatively little of in the party it may also be about planning bigger canvassing pushes in the summer where such epidemic you know lockdowns are less likely to happen but there's across everything that we do and you know, I guess my one plea to people listening to this would be, this is not just something for the federal party. This is something for every bit of the party. And so all of us need to think about how does the bit of the party that we have some involvement in start to adjust to this very different new world. And, and a classic example from the Preston local party, we've had a debate privately in our kind of campaigners group is about whether or not we should be phoning residents at all. So absolutely mm. at the moment, no kind of political canvassing or anything like that, that is not what we're asking. But whether or not we should be phoning, particularly people who are vulnerable, checking if they're all right, checking if they need any help, if there's any assistance we can give. And on one side of it, there's people like myself, I think I think that's part of my job as a councillor and a campaigner to do that. On the other side, there are people very worried that even with best intentions, you might look like you're trying to capitalise on this issue. Uh, um, and so local parties 
do have to find that medium which what they're happy to do mm. going forward in the light of what is going to be like i say a very rough few months yeah. where there's going to be a lot of sadness in the country yeah. yeah absolutely and i think that local activism is really important and actually going back to what you're saying earlier john is quite a good example of how what is appropriate will vary quite a lot depending on the local circumstances because I think there, for example, there's someone like yourself who is well known by residents in your ward and, you know, has a long track record of doing casework and so on for them. You getting in touch with them probably feels much less party partisan and, you know, punchy duty politics, etc. than if somebody is in an area where they've not heard from the Lib Dems at all for three years and suddenly get a phone call from a, you know, a, a Lib Dem activist. And likewise, how well or not the local council is run. You know, in some places, dare I say it, there are even some non-Lib Dem councils that are run, you know, not too well, not too badly. Um, in some cases, us very much seeing our role as pointing people at the council and what they're doing definitely makes sense. I know, though, in other places with very poorly performing councils, it's a slightly different balance of activity that is the most appropriate for those circumstances. And we had even a debate on things like, so we hold three wards here in Preston, and but we have targets for other seats. So whether we mm-hmm. should phone canvas in just our held seats because we are the councillors, etc. Whereas actually going for ones that we're targeting seems a bit more political. And that those campaigners who might want to phone uh, and see if residents are okay in those ones mm-hmm. have maybe a slight less help helping legitimacy to their argument. And so, yeah. And like I said, and the last thing, all, and all our all our campaigners want to do is just do right by their residents and try and mm-hmm. help as much as they can. But it's Get, like I say, getting that moral balance right is very, very tough. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And, and it, that's something that, you know, applies to all of our individual actions as well. I, I downloaded the COVID-19 symptom tracker on my app a couple of days, on my phone a couple of days ago. Um, and in fact, I haven't yet logged into the app today to report that I have no symptoms. But, you know, sim- simple things like that. That you know, all of us really should have that app. If we have a smartphone, should have that app on our smartphone and be daily checking in to help give health researchers really vital data. So there's what we can do as individuals. There's what we can do as member of the Lib Dems, and of course, there's what we can do for our communities as neighbours and as family members as well. And the exact balance between those is going to vary depending on everyone's circumstance. But you know, I know that, for example, in Watford, where they've been doing a lot of bringing elderly residents or in other local parties where they've been doing a lot of ringing around their own party members, you know, that has been gone down really well and is really beneficial. So whatever, whatever, whatever is best for each individual in their area, it is really needed because you know, this is the biggest crisis for the country since the Second World War. And it's a crisis that, you know, unlike some other crises, which are a little bit removed from what their immediate impact is on daily lives. This is very much a crisis where, you know, as we speak, there are doctors and nurses working, you know, in doing amazing jobs, but really working flat out to try and stop people dying. And sadly, they won't be able to be successful in every case. This is, you know, biggest crisis certainly since 1945. And that kind of leads me to uh, uh, probably the final question I'll put to you, Martin. Thank you very much for your time today. But uh, uh, we got a, a question from someone asking about how we were talked about what we do there locally and how we can engage mm-hmm. with residents. Now, there is a point where we obviously opposition still needs to be opposition to a government. It's got to be respectful. It's got to be done in the right tone. But there are here the gentleman who contests has concerns about 
will the Conservatives try and use this crisis to, say, talk about the judiciary and things like that that they've wanted to change as part of their general election? And how vociferous can we be as opposition in the light of what's happening with coronavirus? Yeah, I think there's I mean, analogies to wartime are massively overdone yeah. um, and often are somewhat misplaced. You know, like when people make an analogy to and talk about, say, the Dunkirk spirit, they normally mean as in do nothing and carry on as before. When in fact, the country's reaction to Dunkirk was absolutely not to just carry on and do as before. Um, but I think it, it, it's worth remembering that, you know, democracy continued to function even during the First and Second World War. There were even parliamentary by-elections during the Second World War, albeit the different parties in coalition government didn't fight each other, but there were elections and government-backed candidates lost some of those elections. So the, the functioning of democracy is really important. I think the tone that we should aim for um, is much more, at the moment, one of asking questions. So asking questions helps keep the government on its toe. And all of us who have in any way been involved in running things know that the act of being asked questions helps you do your job better because it keeps you on your toes. It makes sure you're thinking of all the different issues. There will be a time to come in the future to argue much more over what was done when and why. Um, but that's something you know for the future. For the moment, it's really about asking the questions and helping people in as many ways as we can. And I think it, and that balance, right, because there'll be some things the government is getting wrong. And it can be very tempting, so whether that's on the ventilators issue, whether it's someone like myself who's self-employed, who is probably going to very much struggle with not just what was announced yesterday, but with the delay before they announced it yesterday. It's about being a critical friend rather than jumping up and down and getting red in the face, because otherwise people can just say, what are you doing? Now is not the time to be that sort of person. Exactly. And, you know, there will be a time for for much more sort of political type analysis over what was done and why and what are the lessons. And I think some of those will be quite difficult. I mean, it's it's interesting if you look at the big tech firms, Google, Facebook, Twitter, etc. Uh, they've taken, I think, generally a pretty responsible mm. attitude and their willingness to edit and tinker with their algorithms in order to promote really high quality information on coronavirus um, goes well beyond what they have previously been willing to do. In And you could say maybe that coronavirus is just something that's one off, you know, out of the ordinary. But, you know, there will be a debate to be had to say, well, look, if Google can, you know, and Facebook and Twitter can do all of this for coronavirus, why shouldn't they be doing it for cancer? Why shouldn't they be doing it for vaccines? Yeah, there, there are actually lots of other issues where misinformation is rife and actually even more lives are at stake in terms of, you know, how many deaths there are uh, from, 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 from other factors. You know, it may well be that coronavirus is, if we get it right, relatively low down that list compared to many other things so lots of debates to be had there'll be a really difficult and interesting one on civil liberties as well yeah. how far are we happy with government data there's i don't know if you've seen the little clip of one of the police forces uh, up in the midlands where they've had a drone flying out and they i noticed they've deliberately not made anyone indiv individually identifiable in their video but basically they're saying look we can fly a drone and spot you wherever you are 
and tell you you're doing wrong. That's a bit dystopian, yeah. as well as, in a sense, there's a bit of relief, I think, probably most people have as well at looking at that footage. That, thank goodness the police are really doing their bit in helping in helping crack coronavirus. But if that were to continue beyond coronavirus, or if we start having stories about how on-the-spot fines are being levied disproportionately on people from BAME communities, mm. which is often what happens when you have on-the-spot powers for the for the police, you can see that there are, you know, it's not simply let the government do whatever it wants to do, job done, give them all the powers they want. There are there are definite issues we will need to return to when a more normalish politics begins to come back. And and that's a perfect example of when you were saying about asking questions. That police video say don't come come to this particular walking spot. Actually, the question should be asked, is someone getting in their car and driving five minutes or so to a walking spot so they're not cramped up in a local park or, or on streets when they get their one bit of exercise? That's a legitimate question to ask, whether actually being a little bit away from more people is an actual better way of walking your dog or whatever. That is, there's nothing wrong with questioning those sorts of incidents because that's how we make sure we do find, as a society, a happy medium from being safe being sensible, but also not being too draconian. Yeah, exactly. And and I think there are what 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 one of one of the things that may be beneficial from the point of view of civil liberties is because a lot of data is now being used in ways that it wasn't before, such as the announcement of 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 the arrangement the government has come with to O2 to make use of a whole load of data about tracking where all, all the phones on the O2 mobile network are because that's bringing even more into the light what a lot of the data is that's already gathered by us and so on. It may be that we end up with a situation where we have a regulatory framework that gives the government and the police and so on more powers than they used to, but also get some of this other hidden data more under control. So it might be we can make some gains for civil liberties as well uh, that results in a net overall future settlement that actually liberals can be happy with as well as uh, health experts being happy with and in a sense we need both of those different perspectives to be met yeah okay and i think on that i think it's probably we've had a good old discussion there mm. mark i think i mean is there any other points you want to bring up or i mean by all means we can do this again my time is a lot more with no this is my first election poll like i say in over a decade where i'm not actually working flat out in in april so any further discussions you want to have by all means, we can get this arranged. It's, we're only a phone call away. Um, and I suppose for us both, we want to reiterate to all our listeners and members and everyone else is stay safe. You know, if Absolutely. you follow the NHS guidelines, if you're struggling with your mental health, go on to mind uh, and just look after one another and take care. Yeah, absolutely. Well said, John. Okay, and on that, we will end this episode. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. So this will be on both the Lib Dem pod and the Nevermind the Bar Charts podcast. As always, if you have more questions, which no doubt there will be, about whether that is about the leadership election, whether it's about conference when that decision is made, whether it's about how we move forward digitally to take into effect that you know, we can't do as much door-to-door -door campaigning, do get in contact with us on all of our social media uh, platforms. We are more than happy to take questions. Thank you so much for your time, Mark. Thank you so much to everyone for listening, and we will catch you again next time.